We had a good weekend. The men's retreat was this past weekend, and uh, it was good to get to know some guys and be picked on for a couple of hours. We're very good at that, the guys in our church are. If you would open up your Bibles to the book of Mark, we are going to be in chapter 12 this morning, and we're going to uncover the first 12 verses. Um, as I said, we um, had, we're at the men's retreat this past week and got to know uh, some of the guys and kind of uh, their backgrounds, where they come from. It was interesting in the study of the sermon uh, that we're about to preach this morning. Um, we found out that some of the guys are landowners and uh, landlords and found out some of the guys are renters. <clears throat> uh, Bethany and I had the opportunity to be renters a couple of times in our life, once in an apartment um, and then once at a house as well. And those of you who are renters or landlords know that there's two types of renters. There's good renters and there's bad renters. Good renters will do things like uh, pay the rent on time. And they will leave the place uh, looking rather well and let the, um, essentially their landlord know when something has gone uh, astray or they've broken something. And they leave the place better than they found it. My mom always said that. Your parents ever said that? You should leave the place better than you found it. And then there's bad renters, right? People who don't pay their rent on time or at all, which I found out in some situations. Um, damage place, don't let people know what's going on. And ultimately um, leave the place worse than they found it. When we get to Mark chapter 12, whether you're on your device or in uh, the word that you have in front of you, it's bound version, uh, Jesus is going to arrive in Jerusalem. <clears throat> At the start of the text, we're going to see that he is going to validate a couple of prophecies that came true in the Old Testament. Some of the things uh, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law were against in regards to Jesus, he is going to prove here in this text. And maybe some of you grew up in church and you know about the teachers of the law, and some of you maybe have no idea what I'm talking about when I say that. Pharisees would have been guys who were uh, like your understanding of a pastor, except they abused their office. Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection, so they were sad, you see. <laughs> You're welcome, Annette. And... <laughs> The scribes were essentially fact-checkers. They were guys who would go with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they would essentially track what happened in the Old Testament with what was going on in the New Testament to see if there was any validity between the two. Scribes followed Jesus around a lot because he made some claims to be the Messiah and the Christ, and he did some things according to what the Old Testament said, and the scribes would essentially look at the Pharisees and they would fact check. They would see if he was telling the truth. And the biggest thing that is against the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the text of the New Testament is that they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, God's Son, coming to us to restore us and save us of our sins. And Jesus is going to speak to them because they don't get it in a parable. And he's going to try to tell them a big truth that they need to understand in order to follow God. And so he gives them a teaching. And it's in reference to a passage in Isaiah, chapter 5. So if you want to keep your finger in Mark and find Isaiah in the Old Testament, we're going to be there too this morning. And you can just keep your finger there. 
people go back and forth. The, the prophecy or, in Isaiah, or the parable that Jesus teaches regarding or referencing the passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 5 proves that Jerusalem and the Jews rejected Jesus Christ and loving God the way that God loves us. And the parable is going to impact the religious leaders of the day. And ready? The religious people of today. That's you and that's me. So it's easy to read a parable and think that is in direct relation to the people who lived in Jesus' day. It has no correlation to my life. It's not true. The parable that you're about to read and understand has massive amount of implication for you, just as much as it did for the Pharisees. So let's see if we can set this thing up. That might be a little... There we go. Mark chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to do the whole thing. And he, who's he? Ten points. You get to keep points today for yourself. If you get a hundred, you get to go to lunch for free. Somebody's going to take you there. <laughs> he began to speak to them, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes of the day. There was probably some other people who were listening to what Jesus is about to say to as well, because we know he gained massive popularity. And people came when Jesus talked, and he talked to them in a parable. He says this, There was a man who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower, and he leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit that was in the vineyard. <clears throat> uh, verse 3. And they took him and they beat him. And they sent him away empty handed. That would be the servant who went to go get the fruit of the vineyard. And again he sent them another servant. And they did even worse things to him. They struck him on the head and they treated him shamefully. So then he went and he sent another. And him they killed. And so with the many others... Some they beat, and some they killed, and he still had one other. He had a beloved son. So finally, he sent him, and he said, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Bum, bum, bum. Come. The bum, bum, bum is my translation. Not yours. <laughs> this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will surely be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him into the vineyard. Uh-oh. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants, and he'll give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Verse 12. <clears throat> And they were seeking to arrest him, him being Jesus, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told a parable against them. <laughs> no duh. <laughs> and they left him, and they went away. And then you'll see the Sadducees enter in in 13. So let's get the story. Here's the setting, okay? It is believed that Jesus is in the temple here at this time. This is the week of his death, if you're following and tracking with the timeline of the text. Jesus' death is approaching quickly here. 
And he was teaching for a long while, teaching directly, like I'm teaching you this morning. But his popularity increased so much that his teaching went from essentially direct teaching to now answering questions because of what he had taught. So he's in the Sanhedrin and he's answering questions from people who are inquisitive about what he has said. The religious leaders are questioning Jesus for a second time. And they're looking for evidence to kill him because his popularity is more than their popularity. And they are essentially upset because Jesus' rise to power is a rise to power that they wanted. This doesn't happen in today's society. <laughs> of course it does. We have this a lot of times. You see somebody come and rise in the ranks of business or wherever you work, and somebody will be jealous of them, and they'll wish great disaster or hurt upon them. And this is what's happening with the Pharisees. They're looking for evidence to kill Jesus. And Jesus speaks in a parable. A parable is essentially... A way for you to get it, to get the main idea of what's happening in the text. Or Jesus wants to understand a concept, so he tells a small story. It's interesting. We tell parables all the time, but we probably don't call them parables. For example, the other day, my daughter, Corrine, looks at me and she says, Dad, what's frustrating me? Where did you hear frustrated? Mom said it the other day. I'm frustrated with your or with your dad. Okay. I paused for a moment. And I said, "Green," and I told her a story about somebody who was essentially angry and lacking of sleep at the same time and upset. And I told her something, you know, that she would get. And I said, so that's kind of frustrated. It's in between angry and mad. And then, then, even then, it didn't do a good service to her. She's like, okay, Dad, I think I get it. So we're at the dinner table a couple days later. She said, Karina, what's going on? And said, I'm frustrated with John. <laughs> you got it, kid. <laughs> okay, so Jesus wants people to get it. He wants you to get it. He wants me to get it. He wants the Pharisees to get the big idea. The big idea is that they missed who God was. The big idea was that they missed a big truth. And so he's going to use the Old Testament that they know and something tangible in the New Testament that they can see. And follow me here. The Old Testament, you're going to see a vineyard. And here's where we get to Isaiah chapter 5. <clears throat> the Pharisees, as Jesus started telling the story would have knew all about vineyards because they were described in Isaiah in regards to the Jews in Jerusalem. And they would have referenced Isaiah chapter 5, and they would have looked at verse 1. We'll read this this morning. Let me sing for my beloved, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a vine or a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? 
When I looked for it to yield grapes, good grapes that were good for consumption and eating and to make wine with, why did it yield wild grapes? He continues in verse 5, And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'm going to remove the hedge, and it will be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hugged, and the briars and the thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds that rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So when Jesus starts to speak, the Pharisees essentially look and they go, we know about vineyards. Because we knew they were parallel to the Old Testament. And we knew that God's chosen were the Jews and they thrived as a vineyard until they rejected God's grace and they welcomed his wrath. The culmination of the Old Testament and New Testament for you to get, and the culmination of the Bible, the big idea, if you will, is that God loves us and he cares for us and he wants a relationship with us. And because he's given us a relationship and an opportunity to have a relationship, we are to respond to him in the same way. We are to love God the way that God loves us. And we do that by loving him and his word with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. And we love our neighbor as our self. That's how we love God because God loved us. He did the same thing. And so Jesus says, that's the Old Testament. Now, look at the New Testament. And he essentially says to the crowd, look around you. And what would they have seen? They would have seen that Galilee had many vineyards. And what happened in those vineyards is that landowners would hire tenant farmers or renters to farm that land and they would care for the crops. It would be the same as if the field that's right across the street from us was planted by a guy and then... He gave it to somebody else to farm it. And after that guy farmed it, he would send his servant out and get some of the crop from him for his own profit. He would demand a small little piece of whatever the yield was. And the guys knew in the New Testament that there were fights that were breaking out between the servants that were coming to collect the crop and the renters that were harvesting or taking care of the crop. They were violent sometimes, these fights that were taking place. And inside the vineyard, the guys could have seen the servants coming down, essentially, the road. Because there was a tower there, and they could have watched it happen. They said, there comes the servants. They're coming to collect what is rightfully the landowners. And so that was for protection, but it also was so that the tenants could see the servants coming and they could even they could either give freely or they could plot their own selfishness and try to keep what was theirs. So that's the setting. Now, every good story has a setting and it also has a cast of characters. And Jesus tells a parable, and this is a figurative thing that you need to understand. It's not in your notes, but you'll track with it. The man who planted the vineyard is God the Father. And we see that in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, that God is the creator. He created all of this. If we look around, we realize that he created you, and he created me, and he created this world. And we look out there, and we see that God is the creator of the vineyard. The vineyard was given first and foremost, according to what the text says, to the Old Testament Jews. 
And that nation, the nation was supposed to cultivate a bringing of salvation because people who were originally put in the garden had gone astray. Adam sinned. In the garden, God says, this is all yours except for one tree. Don't eat from that tree. And Adam and Eve walked over there and they picked what they weren't supposed to pick and they ate what they were supposed to eat. And God says, you can't have the garden anymore. You're sinners. You all have fallen short of my standard and we're still in that boat. And the nation of Israel was supposed to cultivate somebody, a Messiah, who would bring us back to restoration, who would restore us. And it would be Jesus, the Messiah. But that before Jesus showed up, the nation of Israel and the Jews were people who God looked at and said, show people how to love me the ways that I have loved you. God even gave them the law. And the tenant farmers, or the landowners, were God's Old Testament prophets and priests who issued out warnings. Love God. Love, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor. And they preached that the Messiah would come. And the Old Testament prophets and priests, the more they preached, the more the tenant farmers, who were the religious leaders, ignored those warnings. And because they ignored those warnings, they said, our ways are greater than God's ways, and we're going to do whatever we want. And far be it that we should give anything back to God. We're going to take everything for ourselves. That's what they did. And so God sends his son, Jesus, as a last resort. The prophets and priests preached about one who would come and be a, a permanent restorer. I mean, Jesus. He's the last resort. And since the Jews rejected God's offering to be restored, he said, you don't deserve the field. I'll give it to the Gentiles. And that's me and that's you. And the parable, as we see in this setting, and we start to set up the story, is the same, and it reveals the same of what the gospel reveals. That the religious leaders, as well as every man and woman, is really a sinner who's fallen short of God's standard. The big idea was that you fell short of what God wanted. The big idea that the people would have looked at was that would have been you've abandoned God's love and you've abandoned God's law. That's what Jesus wanted the Pharisees to see. That's what he wanted them to understand. He wanted them to love him the way that he loved us. But they loved themselves more. And a tolerant God warns us of our sin repeatedly. And he will give us many chances to repent, to enter into his grace, because all sin and fall short of the, of the glory of God. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Because Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, which the world thinks he did. Jesus came into the world to save the world because a patient God looks at us and gives us many chances to enter into his relationship with him if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that he truly is Lord. But what happens is God's patience will run out. And after God's patience runs out, it gives way to his wrath. 
And so the setting is there, and we hone in or look a little deeper into the story, and we have to unpack some more truth. There were the servants who were here. <clears throat> we said it, that the tenants were the religious leaders. They were commanded to spiritually care for the Israelites and the Jews. The Pharisees were there to essentially take care of God's people and call them back to the Messiah who would come. But they ignored God's voice and his warnings, and they made life hard for the people through legalism. Some of you have jobs where legalism runs rampant. You have a boss or somebody who is over you that makes life hard for you. They have a set amount of standards that if you do this, you'll be in my good graces. And if you don't do this, your life's going to be horrible for that, for that week or that month or maybe your whole life. You know, good boss will look at you and say, I won't love you anymore, and less of what you do, I'll help you, and I'll come beside you, and we'll grow, and we'll walk in this together. The Pharisees essentially looked at the people and said, listen, God is never going to come to us. It's been 400 years since the last prophecy of Jesus to the quote-unquote birth of the Son of God. And since God's not going to come to us, We'll make the law so that you know how to glorify God. They made life hard for people. And that was Jesus' big push against the Pharisees. He hated them for that. And hated in a good way. Hated them so that they would turn from themselves and follow him and realize his love. Now watch this. The tenants, this is interesting to me. The tenants were not owners. They weren't owners. They were permitted to live on and work the land. And here's the craziest part. If you are a good tenant or a renter, you could keep one-fourth to one-half, or 50% to 75% of whatever you produced in your field. But landowners lived in defiance. Now take that and put it into today's world and society that we live in. Isn't it amazing that we would say that we are God's creation and we live on God's creation? And this is his world. Because we live on God's creation and God's world, all of this is God's, right? And God tells us that you should work and you should toil and you should take care of the land just like Adam did. And when you do that, you will get essentially a paycheck. When you get a paycheck, you've got to do a couple things with that paycheck. He says, since all of it is mine, I'm going to ask you to give a little bit to the church and give a little bit to the government, and the rest of it is yours. If I were to pull one of you up, and Brad's in the front row, so I'm going to pick on him. If I were to take Brad, and I were to pull Brad up, and I said, Brad, I'll give you $100 today, right now. I'm going to take it out of the, the elder's account. <laughs> give it to you. I would say, Brad, $100, bills. It's 100 right? Okay, got it. Do the math. And I would say, Brad, I'm going to give you 10 $10 bills. Brad would say, I love it, Jordan. This is a great idea. Best one you ever preached. I think it's a good idea. You take his $10 bills and put it in his pocket. Brad would walk out the door. He's like, I got what I wanted. So I came. I came for that. And I said, Brad, hold on a second before you walk out those doors. Brad, is there any way that we're going to do an offering again? He's a deacon, so he likes that idea. 
And he said, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll see you for lunch. I said, no, Brent, how about you give me uh, 10 bucks, one of those $10 bills. Okay, Jordan, I'll give you, I'll give you 10, $10. He comes back and, here, $10. He still has $90, doesn't he, that he didn't have in the first place. And he says, okay, I like that. I say, hey, Brad, I'm going to claim that on my, um, that I paid you that. I'm going to pay you that under the table. Don't forget to give Obama 10. He says, yeah, I got that, <laughs> right? And that's between him and God. And he goes out. He still has $80 to do whatever he wants to do, right? Now, how come when we approach the church and God says sacrificially give to the church and we look at our check and set aside in your heart what you should give, we say, this is my money. This isn't God's money. Some of you do that with your taxes, too. God says, hey, 10% is a good start. Set aside in your heart what you should give, and then go ahead, the rest is yours. The tenants weren't owners. They were permitted to live on and work the land and keep a little small portion. <coughs> keep going. The servants come. The servants are the deacons. They're the ones that take the offering, so don't blame your pastor. Anyway, that's irrelevant. I love you, Brett. <clears throat> they come to uh, collect for the landowner. But they repeatedly receive beatings and head injuries and even death. Now, let's talk about this for a minute, okay? Let's say you're at a family reunion. <laughs> and you're sitting there at the family reunion and you're talking to Aunt Edna. And everybody has an Aunt Edna. And you look at Aunt Edna and you say, Hey, Aunt Edna, did you know that Uncle Roger owes me money? No, I didn't. Somebody hears you in the back of that picnic table conversation while you're eating your brats and your potato salad. That's what they serve at family reunions. And he says, wait, hold on. He owes you money? Yeah, he owes me money. Your, you know, whatever, your other uncle comes up and goes, I'll go get it. He's in a biker gang. He's somebody that you, you know, okay. You look at him and say, okay, go get it. So he goes off and he gets it. He comes back on his Harley and he's all, uh, he scrapes and cuts and all over the place. And his wife looks at him, that's Aunt Carol. And Aunt Carol says, you know what? I'm the one who's really the starter of that gang. I'm tougher than he is, so I'm going to go out and get your money for you. And you're like, okay, go get it. She comes back and she's got a head injury. <laughs> and Grandpa Chuck back here is like, oh my goodness, I'll take care of this. <laughs> Grandpa Chuck did not come home. <laughs> At what point does your patience run out? And here's the crazy thing is Jesus being the fulfillment of the law. You would call the law, you would pick up the phone and call the law and say, this guy has my money. And, and you've got to help, you've got to do something, and that's exactly what God does. He says, if they're not going to listen to my prophets and my priests and the guys who I have entrusted to this message, then I'm going to call the law, I'm going to call the fulfillment of the law, and that is my son. 
with one hand, God is motioning people to himself. With the other hand, God is holding back his wrath. And at some point in the near future, both of his hands will drop. God is patient with you and with me. And here is the application. The Pharisees would have looked at that and understood right there in that moment that they rejected the prophets and the priests' message. They were exposed. And the people who were gathered there looked at them and said, Jesus isn't a hypocrite. They are. God loves us and he cares for us and he wants a relationship with us. He wants to restore us. And God put up with it for a season. Here is his son. What greater wrath do we have as New Testament Christians if we reject the son? If the Pharisees and the Sadducees faced this Jesus who is in their face, and they rejected him, and Jesus' wrath is there, and it's ready, and it's available. What greater wrath will you and I face if the Son being the last resort is something that we reject? Because Jesus is the last ditch effort. He's the Savior. In desperation, the landowner's only messenger left was his beloved son, a fulfillment of the law. And two things happened, and they still happen today. The guys are in the watchtower, and they're looking out, and they see him. And here, there he is. I can see him. He's coming. Look at him. There he is. There's his son. Hey, huh. Right? And the other guy comes up, and he puts down his drinks. Son. Oh, that's the son. Here comes greed. The landowner is dead. God is dead. We can have all of it. No more paying taxes. No more paying tithes. We can do whatever we want with all of the land. Let's kill him. I mean, we already beat up his brothers and his aunts and his uncles and head injuries. We even killed grandpa. Let's take him too. That's what they say. Greed kicks in right here in the text. If they kill the son, they get the property. It's like Far and Away with Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, which is a great movie. Because they tell the story of how America was founded, and you could just go in the land, and you could have a flag, and you could put it down, and you could say, this is our land, and then you could go ahead, and you could do with whatever you wanted with the land. That's how people got land. We tried that with our house. It didn't work. (laughs) I tried it with the living room. That didn't work either. Anyway. Greed gave way to murder. Watch. And so they brutally killed the son with no burial. That is a disrespectful, horrible thing to do in Bible times. Greed destroys everything good. God sends his beloved son. He calls him the beloved son at the baptism. He calls him the beloved son at the transfiguration. So this is Jesus. This is my last ditch effort. My last ditch effort. 
In football, it's fourth down. In baseball, it's a full count. You get one more shot, and that's it. And Jesus is the full count in the fourth down. There's no other at-bat left. It's the bottom of the ninth inning. It's the fourth quarter. The time is at one second left. you got one more play. What is your play going to be? It's either confessing your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart, or it is I refuse to accept Jesus and I believe all of this is mine and I deserve it. And your selfish pride and your selfish greed will send you straight to hell. That's the truth of the scripture. And the Pharisees looked at Jesus and they said, how dare you do that to us? Don't you know how good we are? Don't you know that we go to church every Sunday? Don't you know that we tithe 26%? Don't you know that we wear the nicest clothes in town? Obviously, you have not heard who we are. Jesus, I know exactly who you are. What about that with you? Is Jesus a risk to you, or is he one who comes to rescue you? When you see him coming down the mountain, and you're in the tower, do you look at him and say, there's Jesus, he's my rescuer, he's the guy who's going to help me in my problems, and he's one I can cast my burdens to. Jesus, you're here. Or do you look at it and say, lock the gate. Don't let him in, or even worse, let's kill him. Because Jesus is our salvation. The son comes to restore what the landowners had done a disservice to. It's just give me what's rightfully mine, and we're good. The people killed the landowner's son, then the landowner would come and kill the dead. What would happen if you sent your only son and you both killed him? You would be furious. <laughs> if I send my daughter on a task to go do something and she comes back or doesn't come back at all, she comes back bruised and beaten or she doesn't come back at all, the wrath of dad is coming. It's in route. Exactly what God is going to do. And he tells the Pharisees this. In this text, they start to illuminate what is going to happen. And they essentially said, God is calling people to himself. Why don't you come here? Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. You're going to be saved. I promise. It'll be okay. I promise. I'll take care of you. I promise. You just got to trust me. You got to have faith. And he says, hold on. Don't, don't come just yet. Don't come just yet. Read Revelation. Whole multitude of horrible things on the way. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Keep coming to myself. Come on, you can do it. Come on, you can do it. And then the patience runs out and watch. And God will scoop up those who have called him Lord, and he will send them home, and the wrath of God will just run rampant on those who live for themselves. Isaiah chapter 5, in Israel, God spoke about a vineyard producing wild grapes that would be destroyed because of their rejection. That's Isaiah. And Jesus here quotes that he is the cornerstone, something that comes out of the book of Psalms. Go back that way, Grant. In Isaiah, he says, you have gone astray. And in Psalms, he says, but I'm here and I'm the cornerstone. Watch this. 
I'm the most important rock. I set the standard that all the other stones are straight and level. Don't be like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Be like the wise man who built his house upon the and the first rock in your building should be Jesus Christ. The first stone in your home and in your marriage should be Jesus Christ. The first place that you look to as you raise kids should be Jesus Christ. When you go to your job and you say, how hard should I work today? You don't look to your boss, you look to Jesus Christ. That's hard. When you go to your family reunions, you don't look, oh man, Carl's here. Jesus loves Carl. Right? He's the first place that we go. I, I build my house upon the rock, and the foundation is Christ. It's the plumb line for everything else. Three considerations, and I'll let you go. <clears throat> Three considerations. What's the application? Big, big application. This isn't in your notes, but you might want to write this down. First one. As you live this week as Christians, those who have Confess in their mouth and believe in their heart, Jesus Christ is the Lord. Consider first and foremost the patience of God. Did you do that? If you got your Bibles, go over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 <clears throat> Peter's on the right, just keep going past uh, Hebrews, and then you'll see James, and you'll get to 1 Peter. <clears throat> I like this. 1 Peter chapter 3 is where I'm going to read. <clears throat> Sorry, 2 Peter. That would have been bad because I was going to talk about husbands love your wives. That's another sermon for another day. 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> now, listen. This is now the second letter that I am writing you, Peter. To the beloved church, that's you and that's me. Isn't that cool? And both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, Old Testament, man, I love the Bible, and the commandments of the Lord, New Testament, and the Savior through your apostles, those who have taught Jesus Christ, three. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing and they'll follow their own sinful desires. They will say, where is this promise of the coming of Jesus Christ? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Do people do that? Do people look at you and say, where is this Jesus that you profess? They will say, where is he? Five. They were deliberately overlooking this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by the means of these, the world that then existed was diluted with water and perished. Seven. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The wrath of God. Oh, I like this. But eight. Not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some of you count slowness, but he is patient towards you. Isn't that awesome? He's 
God is patient towards you and towards me who are sinners who have done God a disservice. God is patient towards you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but all of you should reach repentance. In the day the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that were done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Because of God's patience, what type of people should you be? Good question. You be holy and set apart, and you be, according to what Peter says, godly. In other words, loving God the same way that God loves you. Sacrificial love. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Waiting for the hastings coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we as Christians are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's good news. Consider the patience of God. Two, as you consider the patience of God, consider the judgment of God. Nobody wants to talk about that. Our God is a patient God, but at some point his patience will give way to judgment. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, repent of your sins and accept Jesus Christ. And a lot of you in this place have. This is the same message that Pastor Jordan preached this morning that you should be preaching to people who are out there. That's your highest form of love. And consider the salvation of God which you have been saved. People ask me all the time, Jordan, why do we live in this earth? We live as Christians for two reasons. One, for the evangelism of the gospel to those who are lost. And two, for the edification or building up of the saints toward those who are Those should be your two priorities every single day. Those should be your two prayers. God, help me evangelize to those who are lost because I know you're patient and I know you're judging. And I know also, God, that you are saving. Help me to evangelize those who are saved. To love you the way that you love me and to love your people the way that you love us. May that be your prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the parables to get the big idea. We thank you for the truth, God, that's in your word. And may we consider it even here this morning as we've unpacked the text and heard the story. As your word says, if we have heard, then we are accountable. You said over and over and over again, he who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. And we have heard the goodness of, of what it means to be called your sons and daughters. And we have heard your patience about being with us in a relationship with you. And we have also heard what will happen if we don't. And may that spur our hearts to love people who are in front of us this week. May that spur our hearts to 
share and communicate the truth of the gospel to those that we know who are lost. May it spur our hearts to edify or to build up your church to participate in serving here, which many are already doing. To use our giftedness for those who are already saved. To use our resources for those who are already saved. So that others would look upon our relationships that we have with one another and desire the same thing that we have grasped. Relationship with you. We love you, Jesus. We do not deserve a relationship with you. But in your mercy and grace, you have given us one. And our prayer is that we don't take it for granted. That we would continue to preach your truth here in this place. And we would continue to be men and women who are striving to do those things. I pray that we would think about these things and deliberate on them this afternoon and this week and this month. Thank you so much, Jesus, for being patient. Thank you for loving us. 